You're listening to the weekly podcast by Forest Hill Church. Here you'll find a place to grow in your faith, get to know what the Bible is all about, and hear what it looks like to follow Christ. To watch our services live or find a campus nearest you, visit foresthill.org. How far is heaven? Uh, it's as close as a personal relationship with Jesus Christ expressed by baptism, going under the water and dying to self, being raised to new life, the resurrection power of the Lord living in us and taking us to heaven. Wow, great to see all of you here today. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of John. Uh, Through this book I wrote back in the fall, Hearing the Voice of God, it's a 120-day devotional, four months to life change. Got a way for you to follow along. I don't profit a penny from the book. I wanted to give it to you as a way to spend time with the Lord daily so that you can hear his voice and know what he wants to tell you. Let me begin today's message by saying to you, isn't it more fun to win than to lose? I mean, if you're a Carolina fan right now, is it more fun to win than to lose? Okay. Uh, many of you share my love for my devoted Tar Heels, and some of you are ABCers, anybody but Carolina. Uh, you would root for the Taliban if they played North Carolina. I get it. I understand it. But tough bananas. Today, we won. And I'm telling you, it's more fun to win than to lose, right? And the same is true in our faith. It's more fun to believe in Jesus who was raised from the dead, who defeated sin, death, and the devil than to lose and be in despair and hopelessness in this life, right? It's more fun to win. So we're going to talk today about how to have that resurrection life that guarantees heaven but also gives us a life right now that gives us victory over sin, death, and the devil. Again, one more time. It's a lot more fun to have victory than to lose, isn't it? So let's talk about this resurrection life that Jesus gives us. We're going to be in John 11, 17 through 27 today, but let me set up the context, the background on what's happening here and make a quick message that I'll unwrap more next week about learning to wait on the Lord. Uh, After John 10, where Jesus gives these amazing teachings that he is life, that he is the good shepherd, that we can hear his voice, he moves away from Jerusalem to another area with his disciples. And it mentions in the early part of John 11 that Jesus loved to spend time with three very close friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, They lived in a town called Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, and it was a home away from home. When Jesus became weary, he would go to Bethany and spend some time with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Well, while he and his disciples are away, he hears word that Lazarus, his close friend, had died, perished, gone. Now, if you have all power and authority and you're able to do anything and everything, even raise the dead, what would you do? You'd go raise your friend Lazarus from the dead, which Jesus eventually did. But interestingly, after he heard the news of Lazarus' death, He spent two more days away, allowing Lazarus' body to rot dead in a tomb for four days. Now, why did he spend two more days? Here's what I'm convinced of. He just wanted to make the situation seem utterly impossible, (laughs) completely impossible. And he forced all of his disciples, and Mary and Martha especially, back in Bethany as they awaited Jesus to come, to have to grapple with what you do when you have to wait on the Lord. So I want to spend just a second, and again, I'll unwrap this more next week, on what do you do when God hasn't come through for you? What do you do when you wait on the Lord in faith and nothing happens? 
I can only speak to you from my experience as I read the scripture. What Jesus is teaching me when I have to wait on him, and I've had to wait years for certain things in my life. He's trying to teach me to surrender. To give it to him. To take my puny grasping fingers off the issue and truly release it to him. And then wait expectantly in faith, believing that God's a God of victory. And if he works everything for good, God's a God of victory. I was reading this morning in my quiet time, Luke, the seventh chapter, and the, the healing of the centurion's servant. And by his great faith that Jesus marveled at, he was eventually healed. I thought to myself, that's a lousy story if he doesn't get healed. That Jesus is a God of victory. That's, that's what he does. But we might have to wait upon him. And we might have to be patient as he works out his plan. But our God is a God of victory. So we're going to pick up the story now with Lazarus in John the 11th chapter verse 17 out of reverence for the reading of the scripture. If you're able, would you now please stand? This is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, real quickly, if you're going through grief or a problem and you're feeling some pain, it is okay to tell Jesus exactly what you're feeling. He can handle it, believe me. And he wants you to do so. And that's what Martha does here. If you'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Come on, Jesus, where were you? But note, she doesn't end there. She goes on and says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. So it's grief with great faith, right? It's grief with great faith, right? Four of you get it. It's grief with great faith, right? So whatever you ask, Jesus, I know you can do it. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on that last day. You see, the Jews had a very vague, shadowy faith of a sheol. That means a place of the dead, underworld, where they would go to. They would rise from the dead. But nothing of specificity, nothing of real life was ever guaranteed them. And that was what Martha here says. I know that's going to happen. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. How far is heaven? Shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Hmm. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, if you've been following us over the last couple of few weeks, we've been going through John, and we see in John seven different I am statements. We've covered four, including today, thus far. Now, why is this important? John was the last gospel written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are called the synoptic gospels, were written first. John, I think, wrote John around 80 to 90 AD and had Matthew, Mark, and Luke in front of him. 
And John, the disciple who walked with Jesus intimately and closely, he's called in John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, looked at all of those other gospel accounts and he said, something's missing. Primarily, all of Jesus' I am statements. Now, why are I am statements important? Because when Moses asked God in Exodus 3 what his name was before he went on God's account to free the Israelites from the Egyptian captivity, God's answer was, my name is I am who I am. That name means Yahweh. It was the unutterable name of God. The the Jews would never say it because it was so holy and so reverent. They thought it blasphemy even to utter it. Well, here comes Jesus. And on seven different occasions, again, four of which we have seen, he says, I am. And we've seen previously how the Jews, when he said it, picked up stones to stone him because they thought he'd committed blasphemy. He nevertheless said it. It's a clear claim to deity. Thus far, he has said in John 6, I am the bread of life. And what he's saying with that is, those who eat of me and ingest me, you will find your sufficiency in me, and I'll meet the deepest longings of your heart and not the tawdry baubles of this world like power, possessions, prestige. They're all lies. They can't meet the deepest longings of your heart. They leave you dissatisfied. Jesus said, if you'll ingest me and my life, I will satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Then in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Yahweh, I am that I am the one who gives your inner life light amidst your darkness. I show you how to live. I give you my path home to heaven where you are supposed to live. And then we see another I am statement. I am the good shepherd in John 10. Now, the Jews clearly understood God as the good shepherd. For example, the beloved Psalm, Psalm 23, David starts out and says, the Lord is my, those of you who know what, He is my shepherd. And you see in Ezekiel 36, the image of God as shepherd and spiritual leaders being shepherds over the people. So they understood God as shepherd. And here comes Jesus, and he says, I am Yahweh, the good shepherd, John 10, 11. And I will guide you. I will take care of you. I will be with you, and I'll oversee all your wounds and your hurts in life, and I will be your shepherd, and you will be my sheep. And then today, John eleven twenty five. 25, one of the most famous I am statements from Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Through me, by believing in me, you'll never die. But you'll have heaven and the gift of eternal life and even life now. Now, now, now let me unpack that just a little bit for you. When Christians receive Jesus, what happens in our hearts is we're born again. It's a phrase that's been misused, hackneyed by many people, but it's a powerful phrase if you understand it. It means our dead, selfish, stony hearts have been made malleable and pliable by the Holy Spirit, and indeed, he has become one with us, and God has placed his resurrection life in us, and our now spirits, united with Jesus' spirits, makes us who we really are. That's our personality. It's the uniqueness of who each of us is by the power of the Spirit. And one day when our bodies die, and you have read the statistics, haven't you? One out of one die. It's going to happen, whether you like it or not. You you can use Botox till you're blue in the face. You can buy the latest ab machine for the most amount of dollars possible. You can eat healthy food 
you're still gonna die. Great news, isn't it? Makes you wanna keep coming back to here me each Sunday, don't you? But that's the truth, we're all gonna die. And Jesus knew that. And when he puts his life within us in this new born again personality, when our bodies die, who we really are never dies. And that's what he meant here. That we leave these broken bodies and we get a new body for heaven. I am the resurrection life and he or she who believes in me, though they die, they live. Wow. Now, for those of you who are spiritual skeptics here today, and, and in a room this size with this number of people, we always have spiritual skeptics, people who are doubting. May I just ask you a couple of questions, especially the whole idea of eternal life through Jesus? Don't you just wish it was true? Isn't there something deep within you that hungers to know it's true? If you are a unique person and you've learned all of these different things in this life, isn't it senseless to think at the point of death your existence stops and all you've learned is folly? Isn't there something within that yearns to believe that there's life after this one and you'll continue to grow and learn and be in existence? Another question, isn't there something deep within you that wants to believe you'll be with your loved ones again? I've lost my mom and dad over the last eight years, and I miss them both terribly. And I know deep within, though the grief of their loss is real, and actually that grief reminds me that I'm not made for this broken earth. Anybody believe that? And that I have a home in heaven and with the new earth that God's going to make here. And I'm going to see my mom and dad again. Isn't there something within you that wants to believe that? What's gotten Gentry and Hadley Eddings through the loss of their two young boys? It's the belief they'll see them again. Now, come on, be honest, spiritual skeptic. Isn't there something in your heart that wants to believe that that's true? And don't you want to believe there's a place that's not broken like this one? Don't you want to believe that there's a place where there's no more cancer? Where there's no more pain and terrorism and wars? Don't you want to believe that there's a place where joints don't hurt anymore? That sagging eyelids don't happen anymore? That Botox is never needed anymore? And that I can run and jump and play without pain anymore. Don't you want to believe there's a place like that? I know I do. So I think God has placed resurrection hope in all our hearts. And Jesus came to tell us, I'm here to take you home. He is the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in him will never die. Well, how does he begin to convince us that that's true? Well, over the next several weeks, Forest Hill is going to send all of you, our participants, some different ideas on how you can share your faith leading up to Easter Sunday six weeks from now because people are never more spiritually curious than during the Easter time period. And I'm also going to send you these next ten points I'm about to go over with you but in much greater depth. Okay? Because I believe God can get through to our hearts first through our minds. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and what, folks? All your minds. Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field. If you ever doubt the existence of God, go look at a flower. A flower should convince you of the created order of the mind of the Almighty. 
Consider through your minds the lilies of the field. Well, I want you to consider today the proofs of the resurrection. If you're a mind person, think about these realities, reasons to believe in the resurrection. First of all, the truth of the eyewitnesses. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and others wrote down that they've seen Jesus alive. Now, here are your options that they were lying to us or they were telling us the truth. But if you believe they were lying to us, they really didn't see a resurrected Jesus, here's your problem. These were orthodox, faithful Jews who believed in the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not bear false witness. So these faithful Orthodox Jews committed to the law of God not to lie would never have lied about something as important as this. Secondly, look at the eyewitnesses repeating multiple appearances of resurrections from Jesus. Now, what's my point here? Skeptics through the years have tried to say, oh, those 500 plus that Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 15 who saw resurrected Jesus, they were all hallucinating. Well, here's your problem with that. Psychologists, psychiatrists alike all confirm that you do not have multiple similar hallucinations among hundreds of people. Hallucinations are individual. There is the reality of a hallucination for an individual person, but they don't happen in multiplicity. So therefore, to say 500 plus people saw the same resurrection as an hallucination is an hallucination within itself. Third, the creed of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. When Paul's talking about all the people who saw a resurrected Jesus, he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter, then to the twelve, and then on to the five hundred. Now, here's the point. Just like we sometimes say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which was written in the 5th century, creeds were written in the early church. And interestingly, this creedal statement, that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, was something the early church stated at the very moment after Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, agnostic and atheistic historiographers, which is a fancy word for those who study the writings of history, all conclude that this creed was written somewhere between 33 and 38 A.D. That means, as Paul says here, that after he had a resurrection appearance and he went to Jerusalem and met with Peter and John, they gave him this creed, which means this creed was stated by the early church as early as possibly 33 A.D., right after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's the importance. Scholars in historiography. Always go to the earliest date to believe if something is true. Always. When you have an early possible manuscript, that's what you believe because it's closest to the event. So in the early church, they're stating this creed within weeks, months, at the most a couple of years after Jesus' death and resurrection, which gives authenticity to the reality and truthfulness of the creed. What do you do with that? Fourth, Jesus' dead body was never produced. Jesus predicted several times in his three and a half years of earthly ministry that he was going to be raised from the dead. And the Jewish authorities and the Roman power structure knew that. The last thing they wanted was for that body to be stolen and for the myth of the resurrection to be perpetrated. So when the movement starts and people claim to have seen a resurrected Jesus, all you got to do in a city called Jerusalem, which wasn't that big, 
is to go to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea where Jesus' body was laid, get it out, produce the body, and the movement ends, right? Right? Right. But it didn't happen. Why? There was no body to be found. He'd been raised from the dead. Fifth, the testimony of Jewish women. Now, now why is that important? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they talk about the resurrection, say that women were the first to get to the empty tomb and to tell other people that he was alive. But here's the deal. In Jesus' day, women were second-class citizens. Women could not testify in a court of law. So if you're making up this story, the last thing you would do is to make your first witnesses people whose testimony was not acceptable. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say, all of them, that women were the first to see a resurrected Jesus. Why? Because they were committed to the truth. They were committed to telling the truth. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Women were the first to see Jesus alive, and that was reported accordingly. Next, who moved the stone? It's a great question. <laughs> Have you ever thought about this? Jesus' tomb had a one-ton stone ruled in fr- uh, rolled in front of it. The Jewish authorities and the Roman power structure did not want a body stolen and a story about him being raised from the dead perpetrated to give validity what Jesus had prophesied would happen. So the stone was rolled in front of it. There was a Roman seal placed on it, and if that seal was broken, the crack Roman guards who were guarding the tomb would have to face the penalty of the person inside the tomb whose body was stolen. How did Jesus die? What, folks? By crucifixion. That means the guards, if the body's gone, would be crucified. A hideous, painful death. They didn't want to face that. So they're guarding the tomb. Yet somehow, some way, in the middle of the night, the seal is broken, the one-ton stone is rolled away, and Jesus leaves. Now, now here's the question. Who moved the stone? Who moved the stone? There can only be one answer. God moved the stone. Not, folks, to let Jesus out, but to let us in so that we could glance in and see he's not there. His resurrection body had been set free. Who moved the stone? Or here's one. The weekly worship day was changed from Saturday to Sunday. Have you ever thought about this? For 1,400 years to the point of Jesus' life and death, the Jews had celebrated the Sabbath as being their worship day. The Sabbath was from 6 o'clock Friday afternoon to 6 o'clock on uh, Friday afternoon to 6 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. And during that 24 hours, they practiced Shabbat, their day of worship, their, their Sabbath day. 1,400 years instructed by God through Moses for the Jews to obey this. Yet, within weeks, amazingly, startling, suddenly, Jewish Christians who saw a resurrected Jesus start worshiping him on Sunday. Why? Why Sunday, folks? Why? Because on that day he was raised from the dead. Now, I don't know about you. I've been at this church for a long time. There have been a couple of occasions where I've changed traditions, something we've been doing for years, and you'd have thought I'd invited the devil to come in and leave this church. The resistance I received from people. Why? Because folks don't like traditions to be broken. The seven last words of the church are, we've never done it that way before. Anyway, (laughs) 
if that happens with just a couple of decades of tradition in a church, can you imagine trying to change 1,400 years of a tradition? And yet, these Jewish Christians who saw resurrected Jesus were willing to do so. Why? Because they knew he was alive. Or think also, number eight, the Passover celebration was replaced with the Lord's table. It's a similar argument. God gave through Moses the celebration of the Passover, the perfect lamb of God, shed for the forgiveness of their sins so that they'd be set free from the Egyptian captivity. And for 1,400 years, the Jews had faithfully celebrated Passover. Yet within days and weeks, right after Jesus was raised from the dead, the Passover celebration in the church was replaced with the Lord's table. Again, you don't change 1,400 years of tradition unless something's really important. Jesus instructed them to do so. They did so. Why did they do so? Because they had seen what? A risen Christ. Number nine, the changed lives of Jesus' followers, especially James, Peter, and Paul. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He was a skeptic. He constantly went with Jesus' family, Mary especially, to try to woo Jesus back home to Nazareth. He saw the storm clouds brewing. He knew that Jesus was most likely going to lose his life if he continued on this trajectory. He said, come on home. You're going to die. Jesus didn't do so. Yet, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, James was one of those to whom Jesus appeared. And this James, the skeptic, went to be the head of the Jerusalem church and to give his life in martyrdom, saying with his last breath, he is risen. Why would you do that if it's not true? Or how about Peter? After Jesus was arrested, Peter went to the courtyard and denied he knew Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And yet this Peter, who denied Jesus, who ran away in fear, this Peter became the head of the entire global church. And gave his life and martyred him under Nero, saying with his last breath, he is risen. Why would he say that if it's not true? Or how about the changed life of Paul? He was one of the first terrorists of Christians. Hated Christians. Killed multiple dozens of them. And yet, on the road to Damascus, he sees a resurrected Jesus who asked him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? His life is dramatically transformed. He becomes the major proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus to the Gentile world. He writes two-thirds of the New Testament, and he gives his life in martyrdom to Nero. How does that happen? Unless he had seen a resurrected Jesus. And finally, the willingness of Jesus' followers to suffer and die for him some suppose that the early church made up the message of the resurrection because they wanted to keep the hope of Jesus alive. But that doesn't make sense. Why would people like Peter, James, and Paul and, and hundreds of others willingly give their lives as martyrs going to their death saying he is risen, having seen a resurrected Lord for what they knew was a lie? Now, folks, be honest. Would you do that? I'm telling you what, if I made up the lie about his resurrection just to keep hope and love alive, but they strapped me to that wall and they started beating me and torturing me and ripping my flesh apart and saying, you're going to die, you know what I'd do? Hey, time out. Just kidding. <laughs> made it up. Because why? We humans are self-protective, aren't we? We're self-protective. And we don't die for what we know is a lie. So these folks died as martyrs because they had seen a resurrected Jesus. Now, now, I wanted to 
give you those 10 proofs. Again, we'll send them out in, in greater detail in the next weeks. But I want to challenge your minds to love the Lord with all your mind. And then hopefully that will drip down into your heart. Because where Jesus really wants his resurrection life to dwell is in your heart. In Romans 8, 11, Paul said, the power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. Think about that. The power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in me will never die. Now that word in is fascinating. Ice in the Greek, E-I-S. It can mean in, it can also mean in too. And there's a difference between in and in too. In is I believe in Jesus, mental, in my mind. Into means it's seeped into my heart. So what I'd like to ask you now is, has the reality of Jesus' resurrection seeped into your heart? Do you really believe it's true? I recently read a book called Imagine Heaven, and it's a man, a pastor who's interviewed thousands upon thousands of people who had NDEs, near-death experiences. And all of their experiences, those who trust in Jesus, are eerily similar. Here's what he says happens. When people die, like on an operating table, that literally their personalities come out of their bodies, and they hover in the corner of a room, and they watch doctors trying to bring them back to life, to no avail. And they describe how they are surrounded at that moment by perfect light. A light that warms their hearts and ensures them of presence. Some describe angels coming to them. And interestingly, the angels are perfectly and shimmeringly what? White. Because they're sinless, they're perfect. And then they describe how they're drawn to a tunnel. And through that tunnel, they're brought to a glowing, bright, enormous light into a place where everything seems perfect. And that light emanating from a person lights up the entire world. And that fits revelation that says there is no sun or moon in heaven, but Jesus brings light to everything. And they feel such warmth from that light. They also notice their loved ones consumed with that light surrounding them. They even notice animals walking around. And I don't know if they are your pets who've died and gone to heaven, folks. I don't know. <laughs> they might be. Would you praise God that they might be? Would you please? I mean, it, it, Isaiah says that in heaven the lion will lie down with the lamb. So there most certainly must be animals in heaven. And if they're your personal pets, I don't know. But I promise you, you'll find another one that will love you if they're not, okay? But, but the, be the beauty of it is everything is perfectly bright, perfect light. And then here's the other thing they all describe. That light is eventually replaced with perfect love inside your heart. It's unconditional. It wants to give, not get. It wants to more love than be loved. It's just perfect love flowing through you. And I'm convinced that's what Jesus meant when he said, 
I am the resurrection and the life. That that life of light and love, and interesting, in John 1, John describes Jesus being filled with light and love. Those are the two words used to describe Jesus, light and love. That they come into our hearts and flow through us in heaven, but I don't think it's supposed to be just in heaven when that happens. I think it's supposed to be now. I think you're supposed to have that resurrection life right now where you're assured that though you die, you live. That means victory is a whole lot more fun than defeat, doesn't it? That the resurrection life in us assures us that the worst thing that can happen to us, death, ends up being the best thing that can happen to us, eternal life. So why fear death? No fear should not be the motto of a shoe company. It should be the motto of every Christian here. No fear. What am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? If I die, I live. Because his resurrection life lives within me. But even now, that light, that warmth, that love is supposed to live in and through us. So it means that if you right now feel broken, hurting, that God wants to place his healing light in you through his resurrection and make you whole. Because he's the light of the world. It means that if you feel the sufficiency of other stuff driving you, like power, prestige, possessions, all that junk in this world that's not satisfying you, if you feel that emptiness in your heart, he wants to be your bread. I am the bread of life. Your sufficiency, your meaning for living, that he's enough. If you feel broken and lonely and hurting, and you feel like a sheep caught in the bramble thicket of thorns, you need to know the good shepherd comes and gets you out, and the first thing he does is picks out all those thorns. And then a good shepherd will put you on his shoulders and take you home. That he's carrying you. He's taking those wounded, broken places in your heart, and he's healing them by his resurrection, life, and love. And he promised he'll never forsake you, leave you, or desert you. He'll always be with you, and at the point of death, You'll have either some angels or you'll go right into his presence. He'll never desert you. Because he said, I am the resurrection and the life, and I am your good shepherd. So practical, folks. What the Christian church needs today is to have the light and love of Jesus pouring through us. And if we did so, we'd have so many cars in that parking lot and people beating down our doors to get in here. Because God wants to pour out his light and his love through us to a broken, hurting world. So let me give you a practical illustration of how that can work out. I've never been shy of sharing with you my own vulnerabilities, my own hurts and hang-ups, habits. Well, I one time got betrayed by a friend. Know what I'm talking about? Someone in whom I'd placed my trust, and it was an awful, evil betrayal. And I was bitter, resentful, and angry for months. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Maybe some of you have been abused by a family member, a loved one, a divorce, getting fired from a job, whatever it might be. Just that, that abuse, the shame you feel because you didn't see it coming. And, and I read in Luke 6 especially Jesus' words, Love your enemies. Pray for your persecutors. Do good to those who harm you. And my response, why did you have to say that? Because there was nothing within me 
that wanted to extend love, forgiveness, and bless. And here's what the Lord did to me. In a moment, one morning in my quiet time, and that's why I adjure all of you to have a quiet time every day, not to make me feel good, but because you need it. And, and, and in that quiet time, the Lord spoke to my heart, hearing the voice of God, my shepherd speak to my sheep. Here's what he said to me. David, I know you've been deeply hurt. I understand. And he said to me, I know you can't forgive this person who hurt you. I know you can't love them as I commanded you to. So here's what I want you to do. Let me love them through you. I want you to let me be my light and my love through you. And I picture Jesus on the cross looking at the people saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I have a sense this guy really didn't know what he was doing. And so I asked the Lord to love this person through me, to forgive this person through me. And folks, let me tell you what happened. Over the next days, I was set free from the prison of bitterness, resentment, and anger. And since that moment, I've had other situations I haven't liked, but I have lived in the light and love of the resurrection power of Jesus. Remember Romans 8, 11, the power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. I have let the Lord love and forgive and bless even my enemies through me when I can. And then I'm healed and set free. I want all of you to know that, that that light and love is available to you now. And here's some other great news one more time, that when you die, have you figured out you will die? I don't care how much you try to prevent it. And you should try to eat healthy and exercise, okay? It's just not going to keep it ultimately from happening. When it happens... You never die. You slip out of this broken earth suit and who you are, your personality, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, lives forever and goes to be with Jesus in his presence where you'll be with your loved ones amidst the angels who have the most glorious choir possible, singing harmonious music all day long that's better than Muzak, I promise. Better than Pandora, better than Spotify. It's glorious beyond words. And you might just even see your pets. Because Jesus said, I am, not I was or I will be, but I am the resurrection and the life. And he or she who believes in me, though you die, will live. And here's the final question. Jesus asked Martha, and he asked all of us today, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Please believe it. It's the hope of the world, and it's how you get to heaven.